are listening to the Tour des Flaneurs, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 16, today we're in Foix. Where are we, Francois? And more to the point, what have we just heard? We've been sung in there with some lovely local flavour of music. We're, we're, we're in Foix, obviously, uh, which was the finish of the stage today. We're in a little street in the, the old town uh, by a restaurant in which I think we, we dined in the past with Richard in the, the old days. Like, was it three years ago? I, I mean, anyways, we know the place. And yes, when we arrived, we, we, we could hear this choir uh, singing. And um, so the guys in you know local gear with the Basque beret and uh, and everything, and they were singing a song called Les Montagnards sont là, which basically means the mountaineers are here. And well, th that's the case. I mean, today the, the, the riders, the mountaineers were here for for that stage, uh, the the, f the first one in the Pyrenees actually. And uh, well, I guess you are going to tell us all about it. I, I am indeed, yeah, we're outside our restaurant. I was actually going to ask what's on the menu here because uh, we've, got a, we've got the hors d'oeuvres here and today's stage very much the hors d'oeuvres for the Pyrenean main course to come tomorrow and Thursday. Uh, but what will we be eating? Well, I, I can see we've got jambon cuit à la truffe, so it's, uh, you know, cooked ham with truffle. Uh, what's that? Oeuf cocotte à la truffe. Uh, 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 well, same thing, you know, boiled egg with truffle. Antipasti de légumes, bille de mozzarella. So that's a kind of Italian kind of starter. Antipasti of vegetables plus, uh, you know, bowls of uh, mozzarella. So, well, kind of, uh, yeah, European kind of... Uh, Uh, menu. I mean, the, the place where I was recommended by a friend of our, a friend of mine works for the tourism office here, and we actually stopped in Mirepoix, uh, where the, the offices are, and we, we'll tell you a, a, a little bit more about it. Because if you don't know Mirepoix, which is pretty close to Foix, about 30 k's, I think, it's a very, very lovely city, uh, which we stopped for coffee, and uh, which looks, according to our friend David Luxton, I think, um, looks like Stafford Upenhaven uh, without. Shakespeare. So there you are. <laughs> well, that was my observation. Oops, actually, sorry about that. Never, never mind, never mind. It did, yeah, very Tudor, uh, almost like a little Tudor-themed town, wasn't it? Oh. Beautiful. I've passed by Mirepoix many times in the Pyrenees, and, uh, well, I've never known that it would uh, be such an attractive place to stop for Well, you say coffee, Francois, but you uh, you had a little glass of rosé, actually. Uh, actually, I, yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> and, and and you had sparkling water, so I did have sparkling water as a designated driver, indeed. Uh, well, stage 16, the tour has resumed for the final week, and as you say, Francois, the the start of the Pyrenees, um, a, a gentle appetizer, really, with the two big ones to come. And what a stage it was. There was a huge break, 29 riders in it, the most dangerous of whom overall was Alexander Vlasov of Bora Hansgrohe, uh, who strode up the GC as a result of being in that break today. They got uh, quite a big advantage, around eight minutes, and uh, it all started to kick off on the first of the two climbs, the Port de Lairs. Uh, Damiano Caruso went clear at that point, and Michael Woods was very alert for Israel Premier Tech, and that was significant given the way the stage played out. Uh, Michael Storer was also looking sprightly for Group Armour FDJ, and those three were looking good at that point. But it really all got decided on the final climb. And it was the Canadian rider, Ugo Uhl, a teammate of Michael Woods in the Israel Premier Tech team, who went clear. They really took the initiative on the climb and uh, forced it all to split up. It was Matteo Jorgensen, the American rider with the Movistar team, who was the keenest to try and get on terms. Uh, but he pushed it 
a bit too hard on the descent. He had Michael Woods with him. Woods playing the perfect teammate for Israel Premier Tech. Jorgensen misjudged a corner. Woods said at the finish he thought Jorgensen went into it far too hot, far too fast. On the descent, Woods was actually backing off a bit, letting Jorgensen uh, lead on the way down. Um, Jorgensen trying to catch up Hul, of course, um, but he went down and that really did the business for Hugo Hul, the first Canadian stage winner since Steve Bauer, his sports director, back in 1988. Behind, there was a little bit of teasing and probing from Tere Pogacar, trying to put Jonas Vingegaard under pressure, but not really the terrain to uh, make significant gains today, but that's uh, perhaps suggests what Pogacar will try to do over the next two days. Not perhaps the perfect day for Ineos Grenadiers because Geraint Thomas and Adam Yates were both distanced, although Thomas got back on terms. Uh, there was an extraordinary moment on that climb when Rafael Maika, setting the pace for Pogacar, just came to a complete halt and almost brought his teammate down. Uh, had a big problem with his chain, I think a snap chain. Yeah, it? apparently, yeah, that's what happened. And so, at the finish, it was Hugo Hul who won the stage for Israel Premier Tech. Uh, Valentin Madouas of Groupama FDJ uh, won the sprint for second, ahead of Woods. Jorgensen was fourth, Stora fifth, and as I said, Vlasov sixth. A good day for the Bora Hansgrohe rider. Overall, quite a lot of moving and shaking in the top ten of GC, although the top three remain in the same order. Naira Quintana is up two places to fourth. David Godu is up three places to fifth. Adam Yates has slipped back a bit and a bad day for Roman Barde. He was off the back on the climbs and slipped from fourth overall to ninth overall. Uh, Enric Mass, who was looking lively on uh, one of the climbs, he also lost a bit of ground. So going into the two big Pyrenean stages, a little bit of a sorting out on the GC. Uh, of course, Wout van Aert still in the green jersey. Simon Geschke of Kofidis has... Uh, just extended his lead a little bit in the King of the Mountains competition looking good for him now the German uh, although he will have his work cut out tomorrow and Thursday of course and Pogachov in the white jersey the best young rider five riders didn't make it today Jakob Fulsang he crashed on Sunday and fractured a rib uh, he crashed onto his race radio which was in his back pocket and he fractured a rib so didn't start today for Israel Premier Tech uh, Leonard Kemner so close to that stage win at Super Planche de Belfi last week um, well more than last week now he is ill not with Covid but he's out of the race three withdrawals because of Covid though Max Valscheid of Cofidis and Mikel Sherel and Aurelien Paré-Peintre of AG2R which means that they are down to three riders just Cosnefois De Wolf and Jungles remaining and a really bad day for UAE Team Emirates rider Marc Soler who was off the back he was vomiting at one point and outside the time limit 57 minutes down on the stage winner and 26 minutes after the last group on the road I have to wonder why didn't his team pull him out put him out of his misery instead of making him go all the way to the line especially when it was obvious he was going to be outside the time limit The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Tour de France powered by Super Sapien Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insight, and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens for sponsoring the cycling podcast. Have a listen to the Super Sapiens podcast, which is hosted by Xylon Van Eck and Dr. David Lippmann. They have been speaking in their most recent episode to the head of applied science at Super Sapiens, Dr. Howard Zisser, all about the origins of monitoring glucose levels and the evolution of the technology and how that technology can be put to use. So it's just amazing how far we've gone both in the diabetes world, really going from no insulin to insulin, now we're 100 years later, and in kind of the sports world of like, okay, we're going to design some of these endurance events that some people are not going to finish, or if they finish, are going to finish not in uh, the most um, splendid manner. We now have technology both going from, you know, continuous glucose monitoring, but really just information that's available to everybody 
of how to really do it in a way that's going to be, you know, as pleasurable as possible, as safe as possible, and have the best outcome. Find out more about Super Sapiens at supersapiens.com. Francois, it seems this restaurant is popular with uh, members of the Tour de France press entourage because uh, Dan Hackenberg, our Dutch colleague, has just sat down at an adjacent table looking forward to dinner. And we're enjoying a local beer from the Ariège Pyrenees. Yeah, Mitch would be happy to find a new... I mean, craft, craft beers are all over the place now in France and almost everywhere. And let's face it, they may be a little bit exp- more expensive than, you know normal industrial beers but uh, they're always very very tasty as uh, someone would say this this one is called la bruche and it's made in saint giron a place that the tour de france knows well for stopping there many times when you go to the to the mountains and like most obviously it's organic and like most uh, craft beers in france these days you've got lager you've got ipa and white beer and we got we went for the blonde and um, our friend David Luxon who's with us took an IPA and um, they're, they're really look good. It really is good. It's, it's extremely clean and fresh and refreshing. And it's been a hot day again here. Um, there is the hope, at least on my part, that the weather might break a little bit. Uh, it's clouded over a bit. It does feel like perhaps there might be a bit of rain in the air overnight. Well, it will. I hope it breaks. It will. I mean, as we, uh, I mean, I, I've been told, and we we repeat it later. But uh, yeah, normally there'll be there'll be a shift of temperatures t- tomorrow, uh, probably a, a big storm overnight, and uh, which means that uh, tomorrow at the top of Piragut could be pretty mild, if not cold. You know, so. Uh, uh, yeah, it could change the, the because we were up to 35, maybe maybe sometimes for, not far from 40 degrees. And uh, tomorrow, I mean, uh, I'm, uh, probably the weather will struggle to get past the 20 degrees uh, barrier, which lovely. is yeah, yeah, which is lovely. I don't mind that. I don't mind that. Yeah, you mentioned we'll talk about that a little bit later on because the final part of today's podcast features Dan Martin, a recently retired rider who started his career with the Slipstream team, of course, and also rode for Etics Quickstep, UAE Team Emirates, where he was a teammate of Tadej Pogacar briefly when Pogacar turned pro for them in 2019. And he finished his career, Dan Martin, with Israel Startup Nation. And, well, it was Israel Premier Tech's day today, wasn't it? They played an absolute blinder. I was talking to Zach Dempster uh, at the finish. He is one of the sports directors. They were all smiles and, and hugs and backslapping at the Israel Premier Tech bus. Zach Dempster, British fans will know because he rode for uh, Rafa Condor and I think the Endura team for a while. And uh, he was saying that... The whole strategy today was to be aggressive, go on the front foot, because they really got um, you know, caught out when they had numbers in the break last week. And uh, they played it perfectly, didn't they? Hugo Hu, a great win for Canada, a great win for Israel Premier Tech. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very personally happy that uh, Hugo Hu you know, was actually the winner in the end, even though Mark Woods would have deserved the win as well. But for Hugo Hu, it's a personal one. I mean, the, the story is, is, is known in... Uh, Second circles, but uh, Hugo lost his brother uh, ten, ten, well, ten years ago in 2012. Uh, Pierrick, uh, his younger brother, was killed in a in a car accident, and uh, the the uh, the culprit was, you know, just. Uh, drove away. Yeah, and, hit and, and run. I mean, yeah. it wasn't a car accident, was it? It was a hit yeah, and run. Right, it was, and, uh, a tragic, a tragic incident. And, and uh, since then, uh, Hugo Hull had, had always pledged that you know he was also riding, hoping for t- to one day uh, win a, a tour, just a Tour de France stage for his brother, because they used to watch the tour back home together. Uh, and for Canada, it's it's, it's something. It's it's really something significant. It's it's not a big. Second uh, nation, it's, it's 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 you know it's 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 evolving and progressing year in and year out, and and it actually progressed since the Tour de France was shown on the Canadian TV on a channel called Evasion, and it, which was run by the same guy Serge Arsenault, who's you know created the Grand Prix de Quebec and the Grand Prix de Montréal, and I, I've I've met Hugo many many times at the Canadian Grand Prix, a, a smashing young man, really really great rider, and there there have been. There have been suggestions when he when he signed for Astana and later for Israel Premier Tech that he was in those teams because they had Canadian sponsors, which is true. I mean, uh, with Astana, 
I started Argos as bikes, and they were Canadian bikes, and they, they wanted to have uh, Canadian riders, and Hugo went in there, well, in, in a way, because Argos were there. Same with Premier Tech. Premier Tech is a Canadian company, and, uh, and, and the, the guy in charge of Premier Tech is a good friend of Hugo Hull as well. So there, 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 there was were talk, talk from time to time, ah, well, you know, Hugo Hull is only in, the, in it because of the sponsors. He proved today that, you know, because he, he has a great record as a junior rider, as an amateur rider, and he proved today that he really had reached the, the, the world tour level uh, and if anybody doubted he, he, he had and uh, yeah really a, a smashing win by Hugo yeah I mean this is his fourth consecutive Tour de France he's ridden it every year since 2019 and I remember he was an early victim of outside the team bus a couple mm. of years ago uh, our little slot in the cycling podcast the story of his brother and the pair of them watching the tour on TV when they were kids, it's a compelling story. And just a, a little shout out to some of our colleagues who've written this story in the past. I, I know Andy McGrath, um, our colleague, wrote that story uh, during this Tour de France. But previously, Sive uh, O'Shea wrote the story for Velo News last year. Really worth looking out those two articles. And also, Nick Busker wrote about it for Pro Cycling Magazine. Now, Nick guest edited an episode of the Cycling Podcast over the Christmas period. Uh, with a couple of other friends of the podcast uh, so um, check out those articles if you want to know a bit more about Ugo Uhl um, but it was a it was a terrific win very well crafted they did the obvious thing but they still had to do it uh, Zach Dempster also pointed out that he felt that they were Woods and Uhl were two of the strongest riders in the break maybe Uhl not necessarily on paper uh, the rider that everyone would watch which is why they sent him as the, the, the sort of the decoy move that worked a treat. Mm. Um, going out on these stages where the intensity is so high and the power in the chase group is so strong and such depth in that chase group, getting out in front and forcing the others to think about it, well, it paid off brilliantly today. Yeah, Mark Woods, Mark Woods, I mean, which is a writer of, we also like very much, I mean, because he's, he's just simply a nice guy and always you know, aggressive and attacking. He didn't have a great Tour de France because he crashed as others did. And today, yeah, it's, it's a vindication for, for lots of people. I mean, for the Israel Premier Tech team who, who already had, had a stage with Simon Clark in the Cobble stage. And, um, and, you know, for Steve Bauer, who found himself suddenly the new DS and, uh, you know, and in a way monitored these, uh, these first Tour de, Tour de France wins for uh, Israel Premier Tech. And, and to see, for Steve Bauer, I suppose, to see one of his compatriots win uh, a, a Tour de France stage after all these years. Of course, we had Roger Estal. I mean, Canada has always been, has, has remained on the map. But it's, uh, yeah, it must have been something really special. Because also, Hugo started with the team Spidertech, which was a Canadian team. And Steve Bauer was in charge as well at the time of, the, of those Canadian teams trying to, 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 to make a break. And, yeah, I, I think about all my, you know, uh, uh, Canadian cycling fans and friends. I'm thinking of Simon, the uh, you know who writes for La, La Presse de Montréal. Is the, the he was in he was in Copenhagen. He, he only came for the first two days in Denmark because it's, I mean so all these guys who've been following cycling for all these years. For them today, it's a great day, and I'm glad for them. Well, I spoke to Steve Bauer at the finish, the sports director, of course, and before today, the last Canadian to win a stage of the Tour de France. What a day for the team and for Canada. Well, certainly for Hugo Hull and the team, uh, what an amazing race. Uh, Michael Woods was awesome as well. Uh, it was our goal to put uh, Michael Woods in the break because of the final climbs. And uh, Hugo, he, he knew he had to go as well. And over the, the top of the first climb, the Port uh, Mike was in front and Hugo was biding his time. He attacked right at the bottom of the last one and he was amazingly strong, unbelievably strong. Impressively strong. Actually, I couldn't, couldn't believe how well he was going. What did you think when Jorgensen crashed? Because obviously he was trying really hard to get back on on the descent. A lot of ground to make up and, and perhaps just pushed it too much in the corner. Yeah, the, the descent was, uh, you know, wasn't overly tricky at the top. It was a lot of gravel and, uh, you know, Michael was obviously following Jorgensen. And, but the, there was that tricky uh, left turn in town that um, I warned the guys about because it was quite tight, you know, and, and I think it surprised uh Jurgensen, unfortunately, and, and he fell, but he, he was obviously trying to bridge up to, to Hugo the best he could. And how important to have Michael Woods there, just sitting tight, waiting, making it all the harder for Jurgensen? Well, you know, that's what teammates are for, huh? Make, make it hard on the other guys, and uh, 
But yeah, Hugo really held his own on the Muir. It was unbelievable. He had 40 seconds. He held 40 seconds. Uh, Mateo brought, he brought him back a little bit at the top, but he still held 30 seconds all the way down the descent. So he was, he was looking good. We've all read the story about Hugo and his brother. I mean, extra significance to get a win here at the Tour de France for him, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I think uh, every Tour de France victory is huge and uh, a first one for Mr. Hool. Um, I believed in him for, for many, many years that he could do this kind of, uh, kind of performance and certainly he proved it today that he's one of the best riders in the world. On a certain day, he can put it together. So congratulations, Hugo. And the first Canadian stage win in the Tour since when? Well, 1988, huh? It's been a while, huh? It's been a while. You know, I'm not a young lad anymore, and uh, but that was a memorable... Uh, actually, I finished solo as well, so maybe it's fitting. Well, that was Steve Bauer. He won in Normandy in 1988, and he wore the yellow jersey for 10 days as well that year. Uh, he also wore the yellow jersey, I think, two years later in 1990. But it's been a long wait for Canada. And, you know, although the team is Israel Premier Tech, and there's obviously a, a, a big Israeli influence, there's also a Canadian spine to the team. Premier Tech is a Canadian corporation, and Sylvan Adams is a Canadian-born uh, dual citizen, Israeli dual citizen. Uh, he's the kind of the, the, the money and the, the sort of the influence behind the team. So uh, it is a kind of Israeli Canadian team, and you know, hugely significant that they got a win with uh, Hugo Uhl and Uhl, a French-speaking Canadian, yeah, right? Yeah, yes, yeah. Well, he speaks very good English as well. But I mean, yeah, he was born in the, in the state of Quebec, which is uh, well, which is which is a French-speaking uh, part of Canada. When he, I wanted to talk, I, I couldn't, unfortunately, because I, you know, it's not very easy on the mountain stages to catch all the riders we want to talk to. I really wanted to talk to Antoine Duchesne, who works for, uh, rides for Groupama FDJ, because they came to France together when they, they, they became pro. Uh, um, Hugo joined AG2R at the time, and um, Antoine Duchesne was uh, with uh, well, the team that is now Total Energy. And, uh, and they really, really made their way together in the World Tour ranks. And uh, it's, it's a great story, you know, of, uh, of these, these, these guys coming from abroad, trying to, 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 to fight their way into the, into the World Tour peloton. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, for, for all these, uh, you know, all, all these... Uh, we, we, we're really hoping that the, the, Canadian, the Canadian Grand Prix, after two years of, uh, you know, cancellation due to COVID, are back in uh, September. So I, I'm sure there will be a, a big celebration for Hugo uh, that day. I also spoke to Chris Froome, their teammate at Israel Premier Tech. And Froome, of course, knows what it's like to win a tour stage. Uh, but he was full of appreciation for uh, Ul, who is a domestique, really, most of the time, does a lot of work for the team. But he got his day in the sun today. Chris, I mean, you know what Hugo's experiencing this afternoon. He's won many tour stages, but it's his first. <laughs> this, this is probably the biggest day in Hugo's career. So, um, yeah, we're definitely going to have something to celebrate tonight. What's he like as a, as a teammate, someone to ride with? Uh, Hugo, Hugo's a, an amazing teammate. Selfless, absolutely selfless. Uh, nothing's ever too much for him. He's always up for, up for anything. Um, he's, he's tough, tough guy. Um, yeah, yeah, just amazing to see someone like him as well, who, who's normally giving 100% for, for his team leaders and his teammates around him, uh, to, to have had the chance today to to have uh, gone for it. I mean, anyone, anyone looking at that breakaway would have, uh, would have, would have said Woodsy was probably our, our best chance of winning the stage, especially on such a mountainous stage. But Hugo getting that gap and then going solo there, um, I mean, he's, a, he's, a, he's an amazing time trialist, so he managed to hold on to it. So he 100% deserves that win. Well, Francois, it was a real day for North America, wasn't it? Because the man chasing was Matteo Jorgensen. He had uh, Mike Woods, I was going to say glued to his wheel, but on the descent, as I said, Woods was playing a very smart game. Jorgensen was pushing on, Woods was backing off, just, you know, I guess uh, letting Jorgensen take the stress and the pressure of trying to close a gap that was going to always be difficult to close once Ulla got the advantage going over the top. Well, we, we, we've, we've known for quite a while that Matteo Jorgensen is one of the great hope, hopes of uh, cycling in the future, especially for the United States. And uh, we, he was he was up front before in, in the state to Meuge, in the stage to Mugev, and we, we actually with Ian 
Boswell talked to him uh, at the time uh, after he was already frustrated because he'd been up front, he'd been fighting for going for victory and probably lacks the experience. Uh, so, I mean, he paid today for his kind of flamboyant, youthful uh, way of riding and uh, you know, probably with experience, uh, you know, he, he learned a little bit more and, and, and might go all the way. But I mean, it, it was the, the, the way he's, he's been riding for Movistar, Uh, really going up front, chasing for, going for it with, with lots of uh, you know enthusiasm uh, was was refreshing to see. We're really you know sorry to see him uh, crash, but I mean that's that's the you know it's learning the, the trade the hard way. He was really 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 disappointed at the finish. I mean he had of course he had bandages to his um, arms and uh, and legs, and, and I was you know was conscious, aware that he, he had been going a little bit too hard there, but you know. It, it was very difficult for him to say so, but we tried, you know, the, the, the few journalists there to, to try and, you know, encourage him, so on, on telling him that's the way to go, you know, you go right up front, you know, you, you'll miss once, you'll miss twice, and maybe the third time you'll get lucky. Today, I knew it was my last chance to win a stage, and uh, I kind of went all in. They gave me half an opportunity. The team, as long as things didn't blow up behind, I could go for the stage if I got on the break. And yeah, uh, I think I was playing it mostly right. It was getting a bit complicated there in the end once Israel had a gap the road and Mike was with, with me. And yeah, I, I took the descent uh, full gas. You had to take some risk. I had, to, I had to close a gap of, I don't know, 20 seconds or maybe more. I was taking risks. And uh, yeah, that's what happens when you take risks. You have a chance of crashing. and. Mostly just disappointment that I couldn't uh, couldn't even finish on the podium at this stage. It just yeah, just stings a lot. I had good legs, so when you have legs like that, I think it just makes it even more disappointing not to uh, not to win the stage. I mean, yeah, I just had really good legs, and I think uh, when Hugo Hul was up there, I just didn't quite see him go. I was at the car, and and once we got Tony Gallopin back before the really steep wall climb, I thought. Uh, I didn't know that Hugo Hull was even there, and then eventually I heard on the radio that there was still Hugo up there, so I started just riding on, on that wall, and yeah, uh, I couldn't quite get to him before the top of the climb, which meant yeah, I'd have to pedal the whole descent and with, with Mike Woods on the wheel, and yeah, it just got a bit complicated. I, I don't think, I'm not, I'm not super content with it, to be honest. It's another fourth place, and uh, confidence that I have the legs. I mean, I have some injuries now, so I don't know how I'll be in the next couple days to help Enrique, but Yeah, uh, confidence that I'm growing as a rider mostly, and and yeah, I just need to keep uh, getting after it, and maybe next year at the Tour I can win a stage, but this year I think it's a bit complicated. Well, Francois, as you mentioned, we stopped in Mirepoix for a, a little drink at uh, just before lunch, didn't we? And then we got to Foix, and we had our traditional Tour de France press room buffet down by the river, Uh, featured today was um, I think some pork some lamb there was some black pudding mm -hmm. I kept my plate well away because if you remember <laughs> at Perigud where the tour goes tomorrow you stole my black pudding yeah that's, that's the day I stole your black pudding you know just before you became the flying oh black my. pudding <laughs> but, but yes I did and I, I'm, I'm still very uh, I, I mean how could I say yeah I'm I'm sorry, and uh, I apologize once again. <laughs> <laughs> But Mirepoix was a real gem. I mean, we're in the Pyrenees now. We're kind of on the edge of the Pyrenees, aren't we? Uh, I much prefer the Pyrenees to the Alps. We're going to cover this a little bit later on in the podcast with Dan Martin because even the riders seem to split down between men for the Alps and men for the Pyrenees. But the Pyrenees just feels less spoilt to me, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've made it public and clear uh, a number of times now that I don't really like the Alps, or at least the French Alps. Uh, and, and as we said, I mean, I, I mean, when with our, uh, in our little chat with Dan later in the, in the podcast, I'll, I'll go back to it. But I mean, it, it, here, you know, it's more authentic. It's real villages, real towns uh, with real history. I'm not saying that there's no villages and towns and history in the Alps, but unfortunately, from time to time, we go to ski resorts who were built out of no, uh, out of nothing and out of nowhere in the, in the, you know, in the in the big trend of the ski industry in the late 60s and the early 70s. And 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 my take on it is that they were probably great at the time for kids to go skiing and you know go to the fresh air and they, they, they're not really adapted anymore or relevant in the age of climate change and everything. And I, I really struggle with the 
the, the, the big Alpine resorts. I don't like the, the, those places. I think they're a little bit out of place. And I'm sorry for people who live there. I have nothing against them. But, you know, it's so I'd rather be, uh, yeah, in the Pyrenees. Uh, you know, you've got the, 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 with this old building, the, the food is, uh, as we know, uh, much more spectacular than tartiflette, raclette or fondue. And, um, and the, there you are. So, and uh, obviously there are, you know, as you said, there are riders who like the Pyrenees best and there are riders who like the Alps best. Every time I've asked a question to these guys, why is it that you, uh, as a human being, as, as a gastro, as, as a, you know, friend of gast gastronomy and, and uh, I know why. I mean, I can, you know, the landscapes are smoother and there are lots of things, but riders, what, what's, what's the difference? We're going to ask the question to Dan Martin, but every time I ask the, the question to, uh, for this, to Stéphane Goubert, other guys, they, they, they wouldn't, they knew that they would, they were performing better in the Pyrenees and the Alps, and they, they kind of struggle to explain why. Um, you know, for instance, David Godu, the French, uh, was now f fifth overall, uh, has always preferred the Pyrenees to the Alps, and uh, when when you ask them why, they, they just they don't really know. You know, it's 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 more a combination of many things: uh, the, the the air, the the, the atmosphere, the uh, the crowds, the the, the the tarmac. You know, the the the, the whites of the roads as well. I mean, it's 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 all similar and so very different in the same way. So, yeah, there we there you are. Yeah, and I think the climbs, um, it's not just that the climbs, not necessarily that the climbs are harder, but there's just less opportunity between the climbs in the Pyrenees for everything to kind of regroup back together again. The roads in the valleys are not as easy to chase on. And I think it leads to more risk-taking maybe in the Pyrenees. And I suppose that's where we're at in this Tour de France. It is beautifully poised going into the final few days because we suspect that Tadej Pogacar has the edge on Jonas Vingegaard in the time trial in Rocamador, which is you know pretty long and it's got the climb at the, at the finish. And with the gap currently 2.22, we know that Pogacar has to gain some of that back in the next two days to have any chance of kind of pulling off uh, a second version of La Planche de Belfi and stunning Jumbo Visma again in the time trial at the end. I mean, it is possible. It's, it's alive. There perhaps wasn't the opportunity today for Pogacar to really uh, make gains, but it might be a different story tomorrow. Yeah, the change of weather, uh, hopefully, I mean, will be you know, will, will be favorable to Lionel Bernie, obviously. <laughs> we didn't like the heat too much today, but nobody did, you know. Uh, I mean, it was it was funny because the press room was in a kind of warehouse, really, really, you know, really, really hot in there. And uh, half the journalists took the table outside uh, in the shade uh, by the river, well, as close to the river as possible because it was really unbearable there. So... Well, it's, it was hard for us. It was hard for the riders. Tomorrow, normally, we should have mild, really mild temperatures. So probably, uh, yeah, probably Tadej Pogacar will be more, you know, in his element in in in, in these conditions. Uh, in terms of the teams, I mean, as we saw today, uh, really, I mean, the teams been depleted, having been depleted for the, the, on bo both sides. The the work Sepp Kuss did today again. For Jonas Vingegaard was it was impressive. Uh, Rafael Maika also did his best, you know, but at, at his unfortunate, uh, uh, you know, problem. Well, Mark Soler, unfortunately, is, uh, is you know is now out of the way. I think that Brandon McNulty is going to be an, an important, you know, uh, an important man in the plan for for Tadej Pogacar to do something. We, were, I was putting pinning great hopes on. Uh, in your Grenadiers, as I said before. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask you about this because they definitely faltered a bit today. I mean, yeah. Geraint Thomas clawed his way back up, but Adam Yates lost time. Um, I, Yates really was kind of chasing to get Geraint Thomas kind of almost slingshot him back in, wasn't he, really? So um, probably doing that work is what cost him in the end. So they are down an option mm. now. Yeah, it, 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 it was a bit... I mean, it's, it's only the first Pyrenees stage and you have the impression today was an admission of defeat by uh, Ineos Grenadiers. Well, you may be wrong and you know they, 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 they might do something, but we know that Garen Thomas is not the, the kind of guy who, who, who attacks for, you know aggressively. And, and anyway, he won't have the, the chance to do that. There's one man we, we, we are waiting for. I mean, the attack we, we are waiting for is pocket chance. When is it going to happen? Is it going to, to work? And, and uh, can he, uh, you know, upset or uh, topple Jonas Vingegaard is a big question. He, he attacked repeatedly today. 
what, you know, as you said, probing, testing things. Um, but every every time, you know, Vingard was really on his on his saddle. Uh, we don't know. I mean, we 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 didn't expect Tadej Pogacar to have you know to to fade the way he did the day. You know, he had his apparently hunger knock. So there might be there might be if there's a slim chance of of you know Jonas Vingard being isolated or having a bad day. I'm sure Tadej Pogacar will take advantage of it, and then the question is um, how, how much time there's a need to, uh, to you know, have behind uh, Vingegaard for the time trial. It's, it's another question. We have two crucial days now. Um, I'm afraid in your Grandis, I'm not going to be, you know, the, 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 the third party I was hoping they, they might be. It's, it's more than ever a man-to-man fight between the, the number one and number two in the GC. It certainly is and both of their teams have got cracks all the way through them yeah. haven't they? I mean uh, UAE Team Emirates lost another rider today Mark Soler I mean he's obviously sick um, we saw that so they're down a, a useful helper uh, if he was fully fit would be a useful helper I do think that Jumbo Visma are playing quite a smart game they're sort of throwing this defensive ring around Vingegaard again Van Aert and Van uh, Hoydonk were in the 29 man break which gives that sort of sense of we've got somebody up the road already in play yeah. for later on when the GC group catches them and, and maybe they had a little bit yeah, of help The UAE there. tried to do that with Brandon McNulty they but did. at the same time we could tell the problem Brandon McNulty is kind of the question mark of UAE because he's always used in, in various roles but you have the impression he doesn't really know what to do with the roles he's, he's been asked to, 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 to have today was up, up the, the road as well didn't know whether to wait or go for it and uh, uh, that, that seemed to be struggling. Maybe the, the Marc Soler's, you know, poor uh, performance today and uh, you know illness was was to blame. But yeah, for, for the time being, Jumbo Visma seemed to you know have a, a better act together than, than UAE. Well, let's wait and see. And in the GC race, I mean, okay, they're going for the minor places, but Quintana, Godou and Vlasov all kind of jumping a few places overall and crucially gaining a fair bit of time, Vlasov especially, uh, back into the top 10. Um, but Roman Bardet, I mean, so so close, but to falter again on the first real test in the Pyrenees, a little bit disappointing really for uh, DSM and for Bardet. Yeah, probably the heat was uh, was one of the factors, uh, pro- and and as we were mentioning the Pir- the, the Pyrenees men and the, and the Alps men, Roman Bardet has always fared much better in the Alps than in the Pyrenees. So there might be an explanation. We we could maybe you know I'll ask him one day why he uh, he fares better in the Alps and the Pyrenees. Who, who knows you know? But uh, obviously today was not a, not a great day for him, and. Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, you know, go, go do, as you say, Godu Quintana so slowly, you know, creeps back towards the, the the podium, which was probably their uh, ambition at the start of the Tour de France. Uh, well, we'll see whether Garen Thomas, in in back in the old days, he always had a bad day, uh, Thomas, before he won the Tour. Uh, it's, it's much more consistent now. It'll be very difficult to go for, for you know, to, to try and go for the podium. But you know, uh, yeah. Once again, the, all these little places. As you know, as we get closer to Paris, we, we know that you know every s- single place in the top ten is being hardly fought. Uh, even though the time gaps uh, in the top ten uh, now are, are, are kind of you know very they're settling down yeah, a bit now, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, and yeah, and yeah, the absolutely. next two days will will obviously set it. Absolutely. Um, but you never know. There's some riders who's, I mean, Quintana very quietly riding into a high place overall and always dangerous um, but every time I say that suddenly he slips backwards so maybe uh, I'll leave that there Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France Science in Sport fueled by science Thank you very much to Science in Sport. Today was a day for the hydro tabs to replace all the lost fluids from the the intense heat again. I mean, it's hard to believe it was a full six or seven degrees cooler today compared to yesterday, uh, but the press room conditions were 
well, they were brutal. I could have done with a hydro tab there to replace some of the lost fluids. Uh, I'm now replacing the lost fluids with the, the local beer. Um, <laughs> You know, not quite as effective as the hydro tabs. But if you want to get 25% off all Science in Sports products, go to scienceinsport.com and use the code SISCP25. Now, as we've said through the podcast earlier on, just near the Zone Technique in Foix, we saw Dan Martin, former rider, of course, Tour de France stage winner, won a couple of stages, one of which was in the Pyrenees at Bagnères de Bigorre back in 2013, the first year the cycling podcast covered the Tour de France and I remember that day because that was the day that our audience suddenly jumped and we thought "Hmm, maybe um, recording a podcast as we travel around France isn't such a daft idea after all but we caught up with Dan we had a well a glass of coke I had um, he had a Fanta an orange Fanta I think Francois you had a Montaro, which yeah. is mint with water. You know? yeah, yuck. I don't like mint, as uh, <laughs> well, we discovered I mean, last night. We, yeah. uh, but this is our chat with former rider Dan Martin, who was on TV commentary duty today. Dan, your first day on the other side of the fence, so to speak, since retiring as a rider. How have you found it being back at the Tour? It's just a different world. I think as a rider, you really settle into this routine. Of, you try to teach it just as a, treat it as a normal race. And essentially it is. You've just got this all this noise around it but you blank that out as a rider whereas now I'm actually experiencing what, what the entirety of that noise and just how huge this it's a monster isn't it the Tour de France now it's, it's just incredible just the, all the cables you're tripping over at the start and the breakdown crew and all that it's just a, it, it's actually quite special to, to see this side of it and see what goes on behind the scenes What did you make of today's stage? Yeah I mean knowing that stage so well and this finish it's always a stage that on paper promises so much and always seems to end in a status quo for the GC but I think it's that collateral damage afterwards yeah obviously we saw some probing attacks from Pogacar is he was he testing Vingegaard out or is it desperation I don't know what which way that's going to go but then I think yeah Jumbo's played a great that tactically they got it perfect they having Van Aert up front and I was surprised the gap that Jumbo let it go out so far simply because it meant that they had Van Aert there in the final to deter any attacks from Pogacar and it worked perfectly. Even Pogacar said in the interview, which it suggests that they're eyeing up the next two days, definitely. I mean, there are a lot more accessible stages for attacks, the climbs are harder, and at the end of the day, Vingo only needs to have one bad day, one bad moment, and Pogacar will be there to capitalise. What are you expecting over the next two days then? Because obviously these are the famous battlegrounds of the Tour de France. You know, Peragouda, sort of modern classic. Otacam going back there for the first time in a few years. But this is basically where Pogacar has got to try and gain some time if he's going to have any chance in that time trial at the end. Tomorrow's stage is really interesting because I mean, you've got the climbs get gradually harder. Obviously, Col d'Aspin it's the hardest side they're going up, which it, but it's still not not incredibly difficult Hawke Arzan that's also not hard but then Valeron Dazette it's a tough climb it's a really tough climb very technical descent and it's a new approach to Perigudes normally we come over the Port de Bales and then descend into Bania de Luchon and then back up the easier side of, of uh, Perisord that side of Perisord it isn't the hardest climb in the world but then you've got this really difficult kick to the line but at the end of the day if Pogacar waits to the Perisord He's not going to take back more than 20 seconds, even if that, because it's a finish that suits Vingegaard really well. So he needs to go on Valderon de Zet. And, and yeah, if he doesn't, I mean, tomorrow we could, we'll probably see who's going to win the Tour de France, I think, because on Thursday stage, there's a long valley. And unless Vingegaard has a bad day, if he gets to the bottom of Hotekam with Pogacar, it's going to be very difficult for, for Tade to take back more than a minute and then... Yeah, he needs more than that. In the next two stages, he needs to take two minutes to have any chance in the time trial. Francois, we were talking last night about the Alps and the Pyrenees, and your big revelation was that you you don't like the Alps, but you do like the Pyrenees. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's <laughs> as you know, it's one of my last tours, probably the last, and I, it was time I, I revealed to our listeners that I don't really like the Alps. I think I, I was trying to think why, and we were discussing that with Dan, because he's also a Pyrenees man. Uh, I think I don't like the rugged side of it, the, the fact that the grey rock, the, the fact it's, it's so high and towering, like in, when you're in Chamonix, there's this wall of mountains like ready to fall over you, you know, whereas the, uh, the, the Pyrenees are much smoother 
and they looked more natural to me. And also the architecture, the Alps, I think, were maimed and scarred by the 1960s, 1970s, uh, you know, wave of, of the ski industry. And, and you're left with uh, resorts like La Duez or La Plagne, which are really, you know, I think today irrelevant and uh, to, to, to what people are expecting from the mountains. I think, yeah, the Pyrenees are, are probably uh, better preserved and... Uh, I don't know. It's yeah, they're smoother. They're 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 like more. I don't know, greener as well. And uh, I like the food better, obviously. I'd, I'd rather have a cassoulet than tartiflette. And there are many things, you know, that that point in the directions of uh, liking the Pyrenees and uh, not so much the Alps. Dan, it's one of those cliches that the kind of pure climbers do seem to prefer either the Alps and the Pyrenees. And my sense is that you were a man for the Pyrenees more so than the Alps. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, they just they're a lot shorter climbs. The the interesting thing, you seem to get hit by the heat a lot more in the Pyrenees. It seems to bounce off the road much much more intensely, and maybe it's all usually because it's hotter in the Pyrenees, and we saw extreme heat in the Alps this year. The roads are just better quality in the Alps. It's just that two or three kilometre an hour difference in the race, it just makes a lot more draft, and it, you just get a lot more sit on the wheel in the Alps, and that's what makes it a lot harder to attack at the end of the day. And, yeah, the Pyrenees just have this, yeah, dynamic that, it's just, you suffer a lot more in the Pyrenees pretty much but I don't know why I like them more for that reason I think it's just because I had more success in the Pyrenees I felt more at home in them because I think they, as you say they are more for pure climbers where the bigger guys tend to go better in the Alps where you do get a bit more recovery on the corners and on the climbs the smooth surface they roll better and you do also in the Pyrenees and we'll see that in the next two stages you don't get as much rest in the valleys generally in the Alps you come down off the climb and you have these big wide roads and you and you can sit in the peloton and you, you get all this recovery and the climbs just start gradually and the Pyrenees is you're on off you just come off the descent and you're in technical little rows and you hit the next climb and it makes them a lot more accessible to attacking and an aggressive style of riding sorry just getting distracted here because a wasp has just uh, drowning plummeted into my cold drink here a yellow and black wasp struggling in a fizzy glass of coke bad sign for Vingegaard maybe I don't know a bad omen for Vingegaard, that. Um, you holidayed in the Pyrenees. You, you were saying you holidayed in the Alps as well, but was it a case of kind of love at first sight when it came to cycling in the Pyrenees? Strangely, a lot of my memories as a, as a child are from races watching the Tour de France in the Pyrenees more so than the Alps. I'm not sure why that is, but, yeah, I, I, maybe it's because of... I think you, you always remember these iconic images of the the Basque fans with the Euskadi team, and, it, and there always seems to be these, like... The, the roads are so much smaller, so the fans are more, and the climb because the climbs are shorter. I mean, we saw the Col, the Col de Granon. There was, there was there was thousands of people on that climb, but they're all spread out over this big road. And the Periosaur tomorrow, you're going to have it's going to be five deep in places, and that atmosphere that really it's, it's what makes the Tour de France special. And that's those images. I think they they really send goosebumps down, even as a ride. Like looking back on them as a rider, and and uh, yeah, it's just. I don't know, I, obviously I chose to live in the Pyrenees as well, so that, there's obviously a reason there. And, but a lot of my success came in the Pyrenees, obviously winning, winning the stage there in 2013, but even before that in the Route de Sud, in my first pro victory in 2008, it's, it all came in this area that we crossed the Tourmalet and called Aspan and, and these, these, these epic climbs that, yeah, they're just, they're, they're what the Tour de France is about, right? And what about the riders themselves? I mean, we saw Pogacar versus Vingegaard last year, but it was a big gap between the two. Obviously, a lot closer this time, and the roles are reversed slightly. But can you notice, even one year removed from the peloton, as, as the racing evolved in the time you've been away, I mean, the, they, the intensity seems to just keep increasing year on year in the Tour de France. Well, obviously, I was I got quite close to Pogacar when I was teammates with him, and, uh, and I think you see... The big difference this year has been the weather. I mean, that's riders react differently to this kind of heat, and I'm actually quite surprised at how good Vingegaard has been with his with being Danish and a Northern European. It's it this heat is not easy, but today he always he's always raced raced well. Excuse me, in the uh, in the rain and the cold conditions, and that's what the Tour de France last year. I think it must have been one of the lowest average temperatures we've ever seen in the Tour de France, with many days of rain, and that really suited him. We found out in the Tour de Lain in 2020 that Jumbo Visma, they have their hot weather protocol down to a T. They're incredibly efficient. They race really well in the hot weather always. Primoz Roglic perennially now wins the Volta Espana. They just seem to be able to cope with the hot conditions better than the other teams. And 
yeah, obviously it's that seems to be really counting against Pogacar at the moment. That's what that's what cost him potentially the race on Col de Granada. But we've always said, well, I've always said personally that you don't win the Tour de France now, you lose it because it's the most consistent guy over 21 days. And at the moment, Pogacar lost the race on Col de Granada. I don't think Vingegaard necessarily won it. I think he lost it by having a bad moment at the wrong time. Everybody has a bad moment at some point. Has Vingegaard has he had it yet or is he going to have it and can Pogaccio recognise it and capitalise how do you cope with the heat because what are you showing me this there is the for this is the weather forecast for tomorrow in Piraguida because I heard from a, a young woman I know Lola from AS so that there would be a big storm tonight and tomorrow the, the, the temperatures are going to be very much lower and the, the weather forecast for tomorrow in Piraguida at Uh, at five o'clock is 17 degrees, which is much cooler than today. So maybe a change of weather and a change of the, in the outcome of the race. Who knows? It must make a huge difference. You know, uh, what's that going to be? That's going to be a 15 plus degree drop. Well, 20 plus degree drop in a couple of days. How does the body adapt to that? With difficulty? That can also shock the body. I mean, I think you saw yeah, Robin Bardet today. I think that was a Having a rest day in this heat, it's really, really tricky, but it's also down to that temperature change can be brutal and you can really send your body into shock because especially as been, the guys have been racing in this heat now for nearly three weeks, it's, they're into this rhythm now of, of eating and drinking under this, well, probably more drinking than eating during this race. It's been a strange one. And I don't think we've ever seen such a, a longevity of, of hot conditions. And the one thing about the Pyrenees as well, it's difficult to get water and stuff, so that's going to help the guys race. And especially with Vingago, with his fewer teammates I know Pogaccio is quite limited as well but in the climbs getting bottles and, and ice during the stage if it was hot it's, if Vingo was isolated it'd be impossible but he'd be going to the team car himself whereas now that could, that could really help him out as well not, not just Pogaccio and his obviously performance What about yourself? What have you been doing since you stopped racing? I, I, it feels like yesterday that I stopped racing it's uh, yeah I, I've, I've kept myself busy I I, uh, I've started an investment business called Rubik Ventures with working with athletes and I'm a kind of athlete liaison in that working with all different sports which is a lot of fun and uh, yeah and I've also been doing a bit of journalism trying to take you guys job <laughs> um, doing a bit of journalism but writing some articles but mainly been concentrating on writing my book that will come out in October I guess this is an exclusive isn't it I don't think we, nobody really knows about this yet but it's uh, yeah it will be announced in the next couple of days so uh, officially I think and uh, yeah it, it's it, exciting time it's been a lot of hard work but, uh, but yeah I'm looking forward to putting it out there Without spoiling it too much, um, what kind of stories did you want to tell? What's the kind of thrust of the book? It's just about my experiences as a pro cyclist. You know, and I've got this knack of remembering things, yeah, quite precision somehow. I don't know how it is, but I can... I've got a head for figures and a head for just... like I can remember images that happened 15 years ago with incredible detail, even longer ago than that. I mean, I've got this image etched in my mind for no reason. I don't really know why of... Of Zenon Diascula climbing a, the, in the Tour de France in this misty climb against Tommy, Tony Rominger and Indurain, you know, in the 1993 Tour de France. So it's like, I was seven years old. How the hell? Not even six years old. How, how on earth do I remember that? And that's the kind of thing in the book, you know. I've, got, I've managed to recreate things, hopefully, that the reader can really, that really resonate with the reader. And we've written it in a way that resonates my experiences and really gives a deep dive into my mind as a cyclist. Yeah, I must admit, I've been following your Twitter feed and your sort of little snap insights in, uh, you know, a very small number of characters. Uh, you managed to cram a lot of detail and information into, into those tweets. So you've obviously been keeping your eye on the racing very keenly. I'm actually really enjoying having the freedom to say whatever the hell I want. I mean, that's the... <laughs> It's, it, it, I can because I'm completely neutral. I can comment like that. I can say, oh, this guy's racing well, this guy... Whereas if you're in a team... You kind of need to toe the team line and be like, oh, yeah, I need to support my teammates and all that. You can't really say how great one guy's racing or how badly another's racing because then you ride next to them in the peloton and they say, what you want about it, you know? Or, so, yeah, it, it, it's been fun in that respect. And, I'm, yeah, it's a pleasure that... It's really humbling how people have, uh, have reacted to, to my yeah, input a little bit and it's, it's, that's kind of encouraged me to continue. Do you miss the racing? Do you miss the life on the road? Sometimes I miss the racing a little bit, but I understand exactly what goes into it. And also the style of racing. I mean, I seem to have... It's, I was laughing with somebody earlier because it's kind of... I felt that I was losing my advantage, so to speak, because I, 
this photographic memory I had. I needed to do a few road, a few races sometimes. I, I did the age three or four times, and I knew the whole course. Whereas now everybody doesn't. You don't need experience to win races. You just have somebody telling you where to go and where the road go, how, where, which climbs are harder and which. So I used to really use my experience to fill the race and know. I'm remember I'd be riding down a state a road in the Tour de France and think, oh wait a minute, we did this four years ago. I remember this. We have to be in the front there. Whereas we don't need that anymore. It, the guys are just getting told where to ride, and that's that's changed the dynamic in the peloton because nobody really feels the race anymore. So you don't nobody's relying on instincts. They just know what they need to do. And so it's I don't understand racing anymore. Basically, and even though it just looks like I do when I'm talking on Twitter, I have no. It's like I would never have ex- expected a GC favorite to attack with two climbs to go today and stuff like that. And it just uh, that it's great as a fan, but as a rider, it's gonna I'd spend my time going, what, what's going, what's going on here? This doesn't make sense, you know. And uh, but yeah, I mean, I know what goes into it and the hard training at home, and it's just become yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't fun anymore. So I'm having much more fun now. I'm enjoying my life, and I never wanted cycling to get to the point where. I didn't enjoy enjoy it anymore, and that's I could feel that starting to happen, and I was like, you know what, it's it's time to stop then, because I almost promised myself when it wasn't fun anymore, I would stop, and I kept that promise. Well, I'll put you on the spot with the last question: Who's going to win the tour? <laughs> I've said Pogacar all along, so I'm going to I'm going to stick with that. But after today, I'm hesitating. Thank you very much, Dan. Well, if Dan fancies stepping into the cycling podcast lineup next year, he's <laughs> more than welcome. Um, very interesting. Listen to him talk about the Tour de France. Nearly time for us to wrap up and order some dinner, Francois. I'm looking at the main courses over there. We've got filet de bar. We've got uh, some kind of confit pork. Oh, yeah, there's some good good options there. Some some duck as well, obviously, this being the Ariège. Anything catch your eye? Yeah, the pastille- You don't eat red meat in the evening? Yeah, pastilla de canard. Is, uh, yeah, but as everybody knows, duck is not red meat. It's... Uh, <laughs> Well, I, I, well, I, I make, uh, you know, I make an excuse of, of, you know, pretending I don't know that uh, duck is red meat. You know, be, duck being, duck being kind of poultry, it's, it's, it's obviously white meat, isn't it's it? It's white meat, well, pink meat, maybe. I don't know. It's in, <laughs> in between meat. Um, well, it's nearly time for the tour de Buffalo. But just on the subject of the Buffalo, our dear departed friend uh, Richard Moore's father Brian and his brother Peter did their annual bike ride uh, on Sunday. Now, normally this is a memorial ride to Richard's mum, who passed away uh, a number of years ago, and uh, they go for a 100-mile bike ride. And this year, uh, the ride took on extra poignancy because a big group of Peter and Brian's cycling friends joined Peter and Brian for a 100-mile ride up in Scotland. And, uh, well, my only regret is that I wasn't able to be there, but I'm looking forward to getting back to Scotland for the second half of the Tour de Cosse, and uh, that will be perhaps late August, early September, and I'm hoping that uh, Richard Stab will be able to join us for a few kilometres then too. But this is the Tour de Buffalo, and this goes back, I think, to 2015, and an episode of Kilometre Zero that Richard made featuring Cathy LeMond, the wife of Greg LeMond, the three-time Tour de France champion, of course, and, crucially, the winner of the 1986 Tour de France. Richard wrote a number of very fine books. Uh, I think his finest cycling book was Slaying the Badger, the story of the 1986 Tour de France and this incredible battle between teammates Bernardino and Greg LeMond. And through the process of writing that book, Richard became friends with the LeMonds. And I know that uh, when Richard passed away, Cathy and Greg sent a bouquet of flowers to Richard's wife, Virginie. And, well, this episode of Kilometre Zero was, was just Richard at his most natural, just talking to somebody about cycling and life on the road. Francois will be back tomorrow. Uh, something at the next table over there before we hear from Richard. Something's on fire. What's what's cooking over there? Something well, flambéed. Meat. Red meat. Yeah, it is. It is red meat. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Uh, we'll 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 find out as soon as we can. You know. Wow. It's not crepe Suzette, that's for sure. It's not. It's, <laughs> it's some steak being set on fire. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I'm having. Until tomorrow. Thank you very much, Francois. Thank you, Lionel. See you tomorrow. The Tour du Buffalo. Remembering Richard Moore. Kathy, hello. Come on in, come on in. Thank you very much. This is very nice. 
It's cool. It's, it's cool. messy, but it's cool. You've got British Eurosport, that is. Yeah, we listen to Carlton and Sean. Great. Oh, it's very comfortable in here because it's 35 degrees out there. Although someone was telling us earlier it's 53 degrees in the yeah. sun. Yeah, off the pavement, 53. So we're kind of melting. So, Kathy, you're back on the race, second year. You're a Eurosport expert. That is my credential. My credential, well, not the one I have on this exact second, but in the handbook, I'm listed as an expert. I was so flattered because I know I'm not an expert in anything, but very, very flattered. Well, you've been coming to the tour off and on for 30-odd years. Well, Greg and I have been married almost 35, so, yeah. Now, Kathy, when you first started coming on the tour, it was it was unusual, I think, for wives of riders to be on the tour. You were a bit of a mold-breaker in that sense. I heard stories from... Paul Coakley, who was Greg's director oh, yeah. sportif at La Vie Claire, about it being so frowned upon that she would have to stay in a separate hotel. Well, I did do that. The first year we were married, well, even up to Jeff being born, so that would have been 84, Greg was a pro for three years. We, Jeffrey and I spent 120 nights in separate hotels from Greg, never in the same hotel. Wow. I mean, they, they wanted to keep you separate. And then Greg really changed everything after 89, in 89 he just was like that's it I'm not putting up with this anymore we've been through so much after the time trial he was in the yellow jersey and Jean-Marie LeBlanc was saying he wanted him to come to the finish blah 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 and he says you know what if I win this thing you don't let my my wife at the finish line I am not coming to the podium he said no but no rider does this without a family now you mention it you know now it's very common to see the riders with their kids yeah. On the podium, Bradley Wiggins did it in 2012, and I, and I Jeff guess was the first. Yeah, Greg yeah. was the first. Yeah, but that was just by accident. Um, I really didn't think Greg was going to win in '89. My dad did, and Jeff was five, and my dad had taken Jeff to the merry-go-round at on the Champs Elysees, and as he walked back, they were putting Greg on the podium, and Greg hadn't seen Jeff yet after, you know, that whole month, and so my dad handed him his dad because he wanted to see his dad he didn't realize like what was really going on mm. but yeah that, I think that kind of started it and then we we heard that Mr. Zanier of course who was the children's clothing manufacturer saw that and he's like oh my gosh oh, really? you know that's interesting because Zed the the that was yeah children's Greg, clothing. Greg's next team yeah. wasn't it yeah and Roger Leger had come to Greg the day of the first time trial before Greg took the first yellow jersey mm. And Roger asked Greg if he'd be interested in riding for him. I mean, that I remember Greg even telling me that night, like, can you even believe this guy came to me? I mean, I'm like in such a pit, and he actually was interested in hiring me. So that, in the end, is why he went with Zed. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burney. 